You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, how are we doing this morning? Yeah? Good? Exciting? Excited? It's good times, you know what I'm saying? It's sermon time. Welcome to Stonegate. For those of you that are visiting with us for the first time, my name is Dan Hutchins, typically not the person that you'd see on a Sunday morning. So if you leave here going, I'm not going to go back because of the sermon, come back next week because uh, it'll be a good thing for you. And so while you're turning, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be primarily in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. While you're turning there, um, you know, I just wanted to throw this out there. If you've been here for a while, you know that typically I get to preach on what we call low attendance Sundays, like holidays and stuff like that. And I just wanted to make the observation that I've kind of had a promotion, <laughs> that this isn't a normal Sunday, but it is Cinco de Mayo, which isn't quite as low attendance as Labor Day. So I feel like I've received kind of a promotion. And I asked Rodney if I had a pay raise with that, and he said no. <laughs> so now I'm going on strike after Sunday, so... We do not have time for that kind of nonsense. Let's read. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And now I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be be told, which man may not utter. Verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, very important. So to keep me from being conceited or elated because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But verse 9 is huge. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't even need to explain that. That's just a great verse. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The first time I really sat down to read this passage to try to ascertain what in the world Paul is talking about is this week. And if you were like me and you just got done reading it, I got done reading it this past week. And I was like, what is he talking about? What is he seems to say things in this passage that seem extremely contradictory? For example, Paul says that he boasts in his weaknesses. That sounds like a contradiction. 
Most people don't boast in weaknesses. He says that when he is weak, he is strong. I don't know about you, but when I feel weak, when I am weak, I feel weak. And when I am strong, well, that hasn't happened yet, so I'll let you know. Look at these two words. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. There's a contradiction. Paul's thinking in a certain way that most people don't think. And so this is the question that's going to drive the talk this morning, is why or how? Why is it that Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, I am glad in my weaknesses, I can boast in my weaknesses? What is it about the Apostle Paul? What is his heart condition, the attitude of his heart? What's it like that sort of guides and governs this sort of thinking? So that's what we're going to look at, and I want to I point out three things in the passage that I think if, that are definite things that can instruct us in the Christian life. And the reality is, church, we're not going to talk about sort of new things. The the Christian principle that we're going to see in this passage today is a very common, vital Christian principle. It's something we've talked about on this stage before. But it is an important Christian principle. It's one that we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of because we tend to forget this principle. And the principle goes something like this, that God providentially plans turbulent seasons in your life. He providentially plans for you and I to go through the valley of humiliation and the valley of weakness. It is a foundational, vital Christian principle. It's true of your life. It's true of my life. It's true of Paul's life. It's even true of Jesus's life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things that sort of help us understand how is it that Paul can be glad and content in the valley of weakness. So let me read verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to the visions and revelations of the Lord. Just a little bit of background on the book of 2 Corinthians. It is an unusual book in the New Testament. If you've read it, you'll know it is in a, the, the content is really unique, and it's kind of unique in comparison to any other book in the New Testament. Um, I heard it said that what, what Job is to the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians is to the New Testament. Job, a book about suffering and trials. 2 Corinthians, a book about suffering and trials. And where Paul expounds and explains and describes the cross of Jesus Christ in books like Romans and Galatians, in 2 Corinthians, we see him bearing the cross of Christ, experiencing suffering and hardships and trials. And so that's kind of the background of the book. And and right now, there's all kinds of problems in the church in Corinth. There's these guys that have come in that Paul calls super apostles. These guys come into Corinth while Paul is not there, and they basically take everything that Paul had done there on a ministry level and started influencing the people in this congregation in a very negative way. 
They started maligning the ministry of Paul, negating the ministry of Paul. They actually said very nasty things about the Apostle Paul. And here's the argument that they were using to kind of validate themselves as apostles. They would go around to the people in Corinth and they would basically say, we are apostolic apostles because of and based on our religious experience. That's the arguments that they were using. These guys, these super apostles, were looking in their past and they were thinking, look at all of the mountaintop, spiritually high experiences that we've had in our life. These are proof that we are actually apostles. And the apostle Paul, he doesn't have near the experiences we have. And so we're more legit than he is, so you should listen to us and not him. So there's all kinds of problems right now. And so what, when we get to this passage, which is probably the climax of the book, Paul actually is going to engage in this kind of argument, although you'll note he's extremely reluctant to do so. He actually does not even want to dabble into this kind of my experience versus your experience sort of debate. But he enters into it anyway, and he basically is going to say, listen, if you want to talk religious experience, although I don't very much, I win, but it doesn't matter. Something else matters. So that's kind of the debate that we see. That's kind of what's going on in this passage. And so let's look now and consider our first thing. This is point number one, and this is such a vital point. Think lightly, not greatly, lightly of past religious experiences. Let's look at verse 2 through 6. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. The first thing that we see in this is that Paul, sometime 14 years ago in the past, way back in the past, had this really unbelievable vision or revelation. It's so unbelievable that he doesn't even know if he was out of the body or in the body. He has no idea. And so Paul goes up to, if you'll note, this thing called the third heaven. And the number three in the Bible typically has to do with this idea of fullness or completion. So when he associates the number three with heaven, what he's saying is, Paul, at 14 years ago, this random revelation or vision was taken up into heaven, but it wasn't just the outer part of heaven. Paul got into the actual holy of holies, inner part of heaven, where the fullness of God's presence actually dwells. And he saw such unbelievable things, and he heard such unbelievable things, so glorious and so awesome and so great, that he doesn't even know how to describe and articulate the experience that he had. The Greek actually reads something like, these are unutterable utterances or something. There's, there's such a great experience that Paul does not even have the theological framework to articulate the sort of greatness, glory, and whatever it is that he saw. He can't even describe it to people. 
So this was a very, very, very great revelation, vision, or whatever that Paul had. And so he goes up to this third heaven, and, you know, we're reminded of passages. If you know your Bible, you think of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah gets to peek a little bit into the throne room, and he sees Jesus sitting on the throne, and all of these beasts surrounding him, singing to him and worshiping him. And then maybe even like a Revelation chapter 4, where John sees a very detailed vision of all that's happening in the inner room. Paul might have had a similar experience as Isaiah or John. We have no idea what he saw. What we know is that it was unbelievable and it was great. He was in the third heaven, the inner room, the presence of God. And he saw things and he heard things that he could not even describe. Can't even put into words the thing. Doesn't have a, I mean, this is Paul here. He's got a very theologically robust education. And even the Apostle Paul sees things that doesn't fit his theological framework. That's really interesting, you know. Like a lot of us, we have big, you know, my son, Owen, he's five months right now, and he kind of has like this bobblehead going. He can't quite like hold his head up, you know. That's how, you know, a lot of, we might have these big theological heads that kind of bobble around, <laughs> but our hearts could be little bitty, you know, where we have all the answers and all the things, we've got all the knowledge, but little bitty hearts that have no love for people, no grace for people. And what we see in Paul is there's some things about God that he just goes, I don't know. I don't know. And Paul demonstrates both a robust theological framework and also a very legitimate heart for people. In fact, he is, even in this book where he is faced with all kinds of opposition, he doesn't close his heart towards the people that are persecuting him. He opens up his heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. says, we're opening up our hearts to you. We want to come to you. We want to engage with you. So what we see in Paul, sometimes he doesn't have the answers. So he's got a great robust theology and also a great large heart that burns for Jesus Christ and for those around him. It's a good lesson for the church, you know. And this was 14 years. He had not talked about this once for 14 years. You know what Paul's life was for 14 years? It was terribly difficult, filled with trials. He was argued against, and he was, people maligned him and drug him down and debated him, and he was persecuted, and he suffered, and he had trials and hardships that we can't even fathom. And you know, if I was him, you want to know what I would do? I'd pull out a Hey guys, let me tell you something about my experience that I had 14 years ago. Those of you who are persecuting me and insulting me right now. Has anybody ever been to the third heaven before? <laughs> because I have. So y'all need to quit it. You know, I'd pull one of those or something. But he, he never feels like his spiritual maturity, get this, is associated with his past religious high experiences. To Paul, spiritual maturity does not happen on the mountain of spiritual high at some event, some momentary event. But for Paul, spiritual maturity for him has occurred primarily through the valley of weakness and humiliation. 
For Paul, spiritual maturity does not happen at the next event or in a past sort of, you know, 10 years ago, I had this dream or I went to this conference or I had this great high experience. The fact of the matter is, is the majority of our life, just like Paul, is not spent on the mountain of spiritual high, but in the valley of weakness and humiliation and trial and struggle. And it's in that where we find fruit and spiritual growth. And if you've ever been a believer for any amount of time, you know that's absolutely true. Like I was talking to, I remember a conversation that I had a couple of years ago now of a, um, a volunteer who left Stonegate for a temporary season to go work at a camp, a summer camp. This happens regularly. And it was like, I don't know if it was like Pine Cove or Canicook or something. But when this gentleman got back to Stonegate in the fall, he was describing to me this unbelievable, fruitful experience that he had over the course of two and a half months. I'm not knocking camps, by the way. But he gets back and he just has all of these great stories about how God moved and how God showed up. And then he got back in the fall and all of the struggles that he had prior to camp kind of revisited him. And all of the temptations that he had prior to camp kind of surfaced again. And I could tell that there was some degree of discouragement both personally with himself and corporately in the context of a normal church like us that ministry just happens a lot slower than camp. But what I try to help him see and what is so true of my life is that it's those seasons that is where we primarily receive growth that it's the valley of weakness that's the soil necessary to grow in us fruit. That it's not high spiritual past experiences, but it's actually the valley of weakness, humiliation, trial, and suffering that produce inside us varying deep degrees of Christ-likeness. And Paul understands that and has the wisdom to say, You guys talk a lot about your religious experience. I don't really care about them. They don't really concern me that much. I'm preoccupied with other things right now because spiritual maturity primarily comes not via a spiritual experience, but day-to-day grinding it out, valleys of humiliation and weakness. That's point number one. Let's look at point number two. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This point, American self-help, good things bring good into my life. If I have a lot of faith, God will bless me, goes one way. And gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christianity goes the other way. And we're going this way. So just get excited about it because this is not. So number two, receive with gladness thorns in the flesh. Receive with gladness thorns in the flesh. Let's explain and talk about thorns. We see in this passage, verse 7, three questions sort of emerge that we're going to answer. The first question being, what are these thorns? So let's look at verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. What on earth is Paul talking about? God has allowed a messenger of Satan to go to Paul to give him a thorn in the flesh, figurative language, to harass him all the time. And there's all kinds of 
commentaries and work done on what in the world a thorn is. What is Paul actually dealing with here? Let me make it very simple for you. We don't know. And I think that's good. There's intentional vagueness here. I think that's actually good. Some people think it could be like opposition from other people, like the Judaizers or the super apostles. Some people think it could be like depression or some kind of like real spiritual depressed sort of outlook. And other people think it's a physical ailment. Actually, probably and most likely, and what seems to be the most consistent, is he probably struggled with some kind of physical ailment of some kind. A lot of people think it's an eye problem. Maybe he was blind, something like that. At the end of the day, we really have no idea what this thorn is. We just know that for Paul, the thorn was a big deal. Like if you think about it, in the chapter just before this, in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists out a whole litany of suffering and things that he had gone through. I mean, anything from being whipped and being beaten and having a poisonous snake bite him and being shipwrecked. I mean, he had a very hard life, but he seems to take those things on with a sort of stride and confidence. But when he talks about the thorn, verse 8 says that he pleads with God three times to take it away, and he never does. So this was a big deal to Paul. We don't know exactly what the thorn is. We just know it was a big deal. It was harassing him day in and day out. And um, the other thing we know is, I lost my spot. Oh, if it's gone, hey, grace is sufficient, all right? (laughs) Can I just be a human? Is that okay? (laughs) He knows, he believes about this in regards to his thorn. If, If God takes it away, Paul believes he would be a more effective person or Christian. If God would just take this thorn away, I would become a better person, more effective person, more Christian, a more effective Christian minister, and God looks at him and says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So what happens later in verse 10 is Paul actually builds out and fills out a little bit more about what thorns actually could be. And so we see that they could be insults. Here's what an insult is. Let me define these for you. When people think of clever ways of making your faith or your lifestyle or your words look stupid or weird or inconsistent. You ever have one of those guys in your life? You're like, gosh, I mean, seriously, just stop. This could be a thorn in in someone who's constantly insulting, bringing you down, trying to make you look stupid. That could be a form of a thorn, a weakness. Number two, we see he lists out hardships, circumstances forced upon you reversals of fortune against your will. This could refer to any situation where you feel trapped. You didn't plan it or think it would be this way, but there you are, and it's hard, a hardship. Thirdly, we see you list out persecutions, wounds or abuses or painful circumstances or acts of prejudice or exploitation from people because of your Christian faith or your Christian moral commitments. It's when you're not treated fairly. You get kind of a raw deal. You're persecuted. Or calamities, distresses, or difficulties, or troubles. The idea is one of pressure, or crushing, or being weighed down. Circumstances that tend to overcome you with stress and tension could be a form of a thorn or a weakness. 
So let me ask you some questions to try to help you ascertain what thorns might be in your life, what weaknesses might be in your life. These are just some if-thens. If I didn't have this, I would be more effective of a person or a Christian. If I had this, then I would be more effective of a person or a Christian. If this circumstance was totally removed in my life, I would be more effective of a person or a Christian. If this person was totally removed in my life, I would be, you know what happens, you know what happens. I'd be more effective of a person. About this one, if my personality was different, if I was more extroverted, maybe you think you have personality deficiency. If I had more of a happy, sanguine demeanor, then I would be more effective of a person or a Christian. If, I, if this physical ailment were gone, like some of you have diseases or some of you have struggles with physical ailments, if it were just removed, then I would be more effective. If my parents were a certain way, if my kids weren't as rebellious, if my spouse were more of a solid, flourishing Christian, you just fill in the blank. If I had this, or if this was happening, or if this wasn't happening, then I would be more effective. If I had more hair on my head. <laughs> just me? No? Anybody? Okay. So what we see is that these thorns are weaknesses, calamities, hardships, insults. So the other question that we see, secondly, is who did these thorns come from? And at first glance, you'll see that they seem like they come from Satan. But then in verse 8, Paul pleads with God to remove the thorn. And this establishes a very legitimate Christian principle in our life, and that is that God, there is seriously nothing or no one who outweighs the power and sovereignty of God. Even Satan and his demons have to get permission to do what they do to Paul. And if you're a Bible guy, you'll recognize and immediately think of the story of Job, where Satan has to actually go to God and get permission to bring suffering into Job's life. And then later, Job has the wisdom to say, I didn't know this, but now I know in retrospect that it wasn't Satan. It was just you, and I'm thankful for it. And then you might even remember and recall even Jesus' conversation with Peter in Luke 22 when he says, Peter, Satan has come to me, and he has demanded that I give you to him. But I have prayed for you, Peter, and he will not harm you. That is Jesus asserting his power and sovereign control over literally everything. And what we see in this is that Satan only does what God permits him to do every time. And that it's actually God who controls the nature of the thorn, the intensity of the thorn, and the duration of the thorn. Satan does not control those things. God controls those things in Job's life, in Peter's life, in Paul's life, and in your life. When you have thorns, when you have weaknesses, when you're in the valley of humiliation, dealing with trials and struggles, it is God who controls the nature of these things, the duration of these things, and the intensity of these things. 
And that leads us to question number three. What is the purpose of these thorns? And we see twice in one verse that it's to keep Paul from being prideful and self-exalting and filled with conceit and love of self. Paul had an unbelievable experience. He had an unbelievable revelation that was given to him. And Paul, God looks down at Paul and he goes, you know what? You have temptations. You've experienced things that are rare. You've experienced things that no human might not have ever experienced. And therefore, you might have the temptation, Paul, to be totally conceited and filled with pride. So therefore, I, God, am going to send you, Paul, a thorn to constantly remind you that you are a weak human being. And listen, here's the thing. This is unbelievable. Paul would rather be harassed for the rest of his life with this thorn in the flesh than be ruined by pride. Isn't that unbelievable? He would rather be harassed the rest of his life with this thorn than be ruined with pride. Paul knows the Old Testament probably very well. And he knows that there were a series of kings that got really, really strong, really quickly at a really early age, and then they were overcome with pride, and then they were destroyed. Happened all the time. In fact, if you've got a Bible, I'm just going to go quick to Second Chronicles. I just want to read a couple. This is, the, this is how pride works itself out, and this is why Paul thinks it's so great that God has given him a thorn to keep him this way, because he knows the destructive nature of pride. Let's look at this one. 2 Chronicles 12, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he was a young guy, a strong guy, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of the king of Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against him in Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen, and the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, and Ethiopians, and he took the fortified cities. And then down below, thus says the Lord, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. We see a young king get strength, get power, and he, what happens is his calling outgrew his character. And he did not remain humble, and he became prideful and get, just crushed him. So that's one example. Flip over to chapter 26 of Second Chronicles. This is old Uzziah. Oh, Uzziah. I hope we learn from Uzziah. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah. And after the king slept with his fathers, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It's a great start. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to the seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God and as long as he sought the Lord and made him prosper. But look at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. And I'll just tell you what ended up happening. Because of his sin, he, 
was given leprosy, and then he was excommunicated from the city, and he spent his life outside of the city dealing with leprosy, and that's how he died. So he grew up, started off humble, and that grew into pride, and then it grew into destruction. And Paul has the wisdom to say that God has given him a thorn in the flesh to keep him, conceit, to keep him from becoming conceited, to constantly remind him of his need for Jesus Christ. What an unbelievable thing. That's why Paul doesn't just admit weakness, but actually boasts in weakness. So he goes, yeah, when I boast in weakness, then I get more Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And so now, like, let me just take that and bring it down to us. Like, here's what we learn about this. This, this is really unbelievable. God knows each of you in this room in a very deep way. He knows exactly who you are. He, this is the wisdom of God. He knows exactly where each of you are, exactly the strengths that you have, exactly the weaknesses that you have, exactly the temptations that you have. But he's not just wise. He doesn't just know all of this about everybody. He is sovereign. He knows exactly what people to bring into your life and what things to bring into your life to sanctify you into the very image of Christ. And he knows all that, and he's sovereign and powerful to actually do all that. But he's not just wise and sovereign, he's also good. The posture of God's heart towards people is good, in good, for your good. So we see wisdom, sovereignty, and goodness that God knows each of us very deep, and he knows exactly what people to bring into our life and what events to lead us through and what circumstances to bring us through so that we can actually become more and more like the person Jesus Christ. That's how wise God is and how sovereign he is and how good he is. He knows you. He can bring you through anything he wants to. And then it's for your good. See, some of us think that when we go through valleys of humiliation and weakness and trial and hardship, it's because we've sinned and God's punishing us. But there's no way that can be true because your sin's already been punished. So you can't punish sin twice. That doesn't make sense. What we know is that when God leads his children through valleys of humiliation and weakness, it's not to punish us but it's to sanctify us for our good and for his glory. What we see in Paul is that he recognizes the wisdom and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. God knows that I'm going to be prideful, so therefore he brings this to me, so therefore I can rejoice in my thorns. I can receive gladly the thorns that he's given me. He doesn't just admit to thorns and weakness. He receives gladly with them. Unbelievable. It's number two. Number three, accept with joy God's sustaining grace. Accept with joy God's sustaining grace. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. These are verses worth committing to memory. Just thought I'd throw it out there. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, not of my weaknesses, gl gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may, it's a big couple of words, rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. The grace of God, church, is not only what saves us, we are saved by grace, but it is also the grace of God that sustains us. Huh. It's not just grace that saves us from sin. From the point we're saved to the day we die, the whole Christian experience, the point A to point B, the struggle, the growing from sin and getting out of sin and growing into holiness, that whole process is actually a result of God's sustaining grace. That grace does not just save us, it also sustains us. Let me tell you how. Like, how? Great question. Let me tell you. You ever wonder why Jesus did not just come out of heaven as a 33-year-old man and just die on the cross real quick and go back to heaven? I wonder why Jesus did not just come straight out of heaven as a man and die on the cross real quick and get back out of here. That would have been sufficient to save you, but it would not have been sufficient to sustain you. Let me tell you why. Because when Jesus lived 33 years He camped out and set up a tent in the valley of humiliation and weakness. This is the actual picture, that word that's power rests upon me. That's the same word that's used to translate as to dwell with us, in us, or reside with us or in us. And it has a tent connotation with it. That Jesus sets up a tent in the same valley that we walk through lived 33 years, not a great life, not a good life, but a hard life full of weakness, calamities, struggles, trials, insults, and hardships, and persecutions. He lived in a way of weakness that we simply will never understand. And he did so so that when you and I enter into the valley of humiliation and experience weakness and insults and trials and hardships, he can set up his tent right next to our tent and we can go into him and receive comfort and strength from him. Isn't it great that Jesus does not just sit on a throne high above, although he does, but he's, he's not just distant from us on a throne far off, but he's near to us. We don't have a God who doesn't know what it's like to be human. He knows exactly what it's like to be human. He knows exactly what it's like to have weaknesses. Sometimes I don't know how you feel. You ever wondered, does anybody know how I feel? I've got all this weakness and I'm in a valley of humiliation with trials and struggles. Who knows how I feel? Jesus knows how you feel. Huh. This is the idea here, that when we go through valleys of low humiliation, that Jesus Christ sets up a tent right next to us and says, you don't have to go through this on your own, out of your own strength, out of your own resources. But you can actually, because here's the thing with weakness, it brings us to a state of humility, doesn't it? It reminds us that we're human, doesn't it? And then it brings us to our knees and it helps turn our eyes and attention and focus off of our own strength and power and resources. And it causes us to go, God, I need your strength and power and resources. That's what valleys do. That's what humiliation does. That's what weaknesses do. And as we go into the Lord Jesus Christ and as we trust in him, it says that Jesus is the same spirit of Christ 
that gave him the power and the strength to endure the weaknesses that he endured begins to operate inside of us so that now we have sustaining, empowering grace that sustains us through trials. And it's not our own spirit that does it. It's the spirit of Christ operating inside of us. I want you just to imagine for a moment that you were given $25 million to build a house. You start building a house. It's got gates and it's got huge, got a huge moat around it with a huge drawbridge and you've got security cameras and you've got all this stuff around your house. Jesus doesn't build a house like that. It's not the idea here. That's not a very approachable, accessible way. It's not a very approachable, accessible home. He builds a tent in our valley. He says, I'm here. You want to know what it's like to go through weakness? I've been there before. You're going through weaknesses, trials, humiliation, suffering, persecution, hardships, calamities. I might not know exactly what you're going through, but can I tell you, Jesus Christ has set his tent up right next to you, and he knows exactly what it's like. But here's the prerequisite. We have to admit to our weakness. Some of us, we're in a valley of humility. Like, I mean, like if you don't admit you're weak, you'll never have the operating power of the Spirit of Christ inside of you. Like the fact is, is people who think they're powerful and strong don't need power from somebody else. So it requires us to humble ourselves, just like Paul and say, God, I need you. I need grace, sufficient, sustaining grace from God in this season. As we humble ourselves, we actually are filled with a different sort of strength. The very strength, the very spirit of Christ that led him and empowered him to endure weaknesses that, frankly, we know nothing about. That's why Hebrews 2 and 4 are such great passages that he sympathizes with his children. He's God, King, Lord, high above, ruler, sovereign, powerful, and he also knows what it's like to be human? Oh, man. So we receive with gladness and joy, and we accept the sustaining grace of God. Let me close with just a couple of things for our church, just to try to bring it down to us. It's not a race to get out of the valley. You know what I think sometimes? Is some of us are like, oh my gosh, we need a quick fix silver bullet to get us out of the valley. You want to know why I know it's not about hurrying up to get out of the valley? Paul prayed three times, God, take this thorn from me, get me out of this valley. And God said, no, 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 my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Even Jesus Christ himself in Gethsemane prayed three times, God, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. God, remove this cup from me. And God said, no. And Jesus, in his wisdom, says like Paul, not, your will, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes I think we try to Hurry up. Maybe God is not trying to get you out of your valley quickly. Maybe he's just trying to cultivate inside of you a deeper trust in and love for Jesus Christ. Man, the fact is, and this is not a great American easy on the ear sermon, you might be in the valley from now to the day you die. You might be. One day you'll go home and you'll be out of the valley. So this should be an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement. Sometimes it's not a race to get out of the valley. I mean, Jesus spent arguably his entire existence in a valley, maybe with the exception of maybe what, his baptism, maybe his transfiguration. 
Maybe those were mountaintop, but for the most part, he just took a tent, camped out, said, I'm here in the valley. And I'm here because I know my children are going to go through the valley. And I'm here because I want to know what it's like so that when they go through it, I can comfort them with my comfort. And I can strengthen them with my strength and empower them with my power and give them grace to sustain them through it. Secondly, I think the church learned something here. We went to a conference last week, and the guy talked about, it's a really great point, to some degree, the church has lost its ability to long-suffer with each other. Like, you hear this sometimes in counseling, you know, where someone goes through, like, a season of suffering, and, and your encouragement, or their encouragement to them is, let's chuck a Bible verse at them, or let's try to get them quickly through the season, well, we need to identify, and you know, I've been guilty of this, where I've tried to reach out to somebody, it's like they just don't, you know, they're just in a season of suffering, and we're trying to help them, and we're trying to help them out of it, it's just not happening, it just gets frustrating. You want to know the reality? Is God is a long-suffering God, and we should be long-suffering people with each other. This is a really important point for the church, I think. We need to be long-suffering with each other, and when people don't make it out of the valley, that that's not something for us to look down upon, but we, like Jesus, should set up our tent and say, hey, we're with you. We're with you. Thirdly, and this is just great. I mean, this is so true. Good Lord. I mean, church culture is great when people admit to their weaknesses, and there is no greater enemy to a healthy church culture than things like self-reliance, and things like, I've got this all together myself. You ever walked into church and you're like, these people seem fake. Everyone knows you're a joke, that you're weak. I want to invite you into the way of weakness. I want to invite you to be okay being exactly who you are, exactly where you are. There was seriously a great moment last year where I came to the realization through a season of things that were not fun, to the realization that I, Dan, can be exactly who I am and all of my failures, exactly where I am, and God loves me right now and he's sanctifying me. I'd like you to invite you to be a weak person with me. It's great, you know? I mean, do you like being fake and acting like you've got it together and being self-reliant and self-assured and having your own sustaining strength. Is that fun? No. That's terrible. All right. And lastly, I just want to invite you as an individual to just, I mean, the the Christian life is turning and returning to Jesus Christ, isn't it? Like some of you right now are in seasons of calamity, trials, weakness. You're in the valley right now. And I'd just like to invite you to realize that first, God loves you. Second, it's God's gift to you. And third, that God has a plan for this. And that in Jesus Christ, we have resources that help us in the valley of humiliation, in the valley of weakness. Let me read this quote to you. Pilgrim's Progress, as they traveled through the valley of humiliation... The band can come on up if they're around. We come again to this valley of humiliation. It is the best and most fruitful piece of ground in all those parts. It is a fat ground, and as you seek the best and most, and as you seek consistent much in the meadows, behold how green this valley of humiliation is. Also how beautiful with lilies 
I have known many laboring men who have gotten good estates in the valley of humiliation, for God resisted the proud, but gives more grace to the humble. For indeed, it is a very fruitful soil, and doth bring forth crops by the handfuls. In this valley, our Lord formerly had his country house. He loved much to be here. He also loved to walk these meadows, for he found the air was pleasant. Besides here, the man would be freed from the noise and hurryings of this life. All the states are full of noise and confusion. Only the valley of humiliation is an empty and solitary place. Here, a man shall not be so hindered in his contemplation as in other places he is apt to be. This is a valley that nobody walks in but those who love a pilgrim's life. So good. And though, and though Christian had the hard-happened stance to meet here with Apollyon, the destroyer, and to enter with him in a brisk encounter, yet I must tell you that in former times men hath met with angels here in the valley of humiliation, have found pearls here, and have in this place found the words of life. I'd like to welcome you and invite you to the valley of weakness and humiliation because that is where spiritual maturity happens and where fruit forms and where trust in God happens. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.